Welcome to the 27th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I'm your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is dedicated to those who fight against reflections of themselves. To those who have accidentally or purposefully seen themselves in a mirror or glass or alternate reflection, only for it to dampen their day or result in a deluge of toxic and disordered thoughts. May our lives no longer be ruled by glass, but instead by an empowered peace. Today's episode will explore the question of why we exercise. This has been a question that has frequented many conversations with close friends in the recent weeks and months. I'm a big believer in intentionality and deriving meaning in my behavior and thoughts. And I've struggled to come to an understanding about exercise. I worry that our collective intention behind exercise is disordered, is harmful, especially if coming from a past of disordered eating, body image issues, and the like. Often I find that people go to the gym to change how they look. Why else might there be a floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall size mirror in every gym? So we are forced to confront our body in the brutal light of self-objectification and dehumanization during a perhaps painful, uncomfortable, and exhilarating exercise. There is study upon study and research upon research that proves that exercising is healthy. It releases endorphins and serotonin and other things we crave as part of a healthy neurobiological process. Yet it can become very dangerous. First, we'll start with why exercise is healthy. And then we'll jump into other reasons why we might be exercising. So exercise combats health conditions and disease such as stroke metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, depression. Exercise may change the brain similarly to what an antidepressant medication may do. It increases brain sensitivity to the hormones serotonin and norepinephrine, which relieve feelings of depression. Additionally, exercise can increase the production of endorphins, which are known to help produce positive feelings and reduce the perception of pain. Exercise may also combat anxiety, and many types of cancer, breast, colon, endometrial, ovarian. Also, exercise can help combat arthritis because it helps release hormones that promote the ability of your muscles to absorb amino acids. This helps them grow and reduces their breakdown, which may help in the maintenance of strength as you age. Being active boosts high-density liptoprotein, HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol, and it decreases unhealthy triglycerides, which helps decrease the risk of cardiovascular diseases, as mentioned before. Exercise can also improve your mood. You may feel better about your appearance, which boosts confidence and self-esteem. This reminds me of our tendency to place our self-worth in external stimuli, another person, a mirror, a scale, etc., This is a compulsive behavior I've noticed of myself and of others. We need to affirm the challenge. We need to affirm 
unchallenge our own self-concepts. A constant cyclical urge, never fulfilled by one small glance in the mirror. We need to constantly fight against this tendency. Our worth should not be found in a piece of glass. That was a tangent. (laughs) Exercise can also boost energy. Another positive, right? It can improve muscle strength and boost endurance. Exercise delivers oxygen and nutrients to your tissues and helps your cardiovascular system work more efficiently. And when your heart and lung health improve, you have more energy to tackle daily chores. Exercise can also promote better sleep, can be seen as a social activity when you work out with others and socialize in that way. And it can do many other great things for your health and your well-being. Even though intense and exhaustive physical activity can contribute to oxidative damage, regular moderate exercise can actually increase your body's production of natural antioxidants, which helps protect cells. And finally, exercise can improve cognitive skills, such as increasing your heart rate because of the flow of blood and oxygen to your brain, which stimulates the production of hormones that enhance the growth of brain cells. It is important to note that most of these health benefits are from moderate and frequent exercise, not intense and exhaustive necessarily. But now we should have a discussion. What is the intention behind exercising in our culture? Because I truly believe that there are some emotional and psychological unhealthy intentions that may result in someone going to the gym. You may notice that I left one thing off the list above. Weight loss. Upon preliminary research for this episode, one of the several listed benefits of regular physical activity is that exercise controls weight. Indeed, this benefit is listed as number one on many, many articles and web pages and infographics. Our culture is obsessed with our bodies. From the 1970s to the early 1990s, messages surrounding a body curriculum emerged. We started to engage in formal learning and informal exchanges that became integral in our assessment of our own bodies. This curriculum is referred to as a biopedagogy or body pedagogies, which is the loose collection of information, instructions, and directives about how to live, what a body should be, what a good citizen is, and what to do in order to be healthy and happy. Body image disturbance and maladaptive behavior started to rise. We look upon the 1980s as a time of loud neon colors, poofy hair, and workout videos, which I think interestingly correlates with the emergence of a body curriculum. It's also interesting that the rise of exercise as treatment coincided with the rise of the hyper-awareness of our physical appearance. For example, the American Heart Association promulgated the country's First set of exercise guidelines in 1972. Our culture is body-obsessed. Our feelings of worth are dictated by the bodies we inhabit. We are preoccupied with our physical appearance. 
our thoughts surrounding our bodies become more and more the ruling factors of our lives. Regrettably, these thoughts are largely negative. We live surrounded and plagued by body dissatisfaction, which can impede upon self-esteem and confidence. Our culture is body-obsessed, and the body we are obsessed with is a thin one. Is one who engages in exercise as a way to control or manipulate their appearance. Dieting culture is intimately, unmanageably married to exercise culture. Virgie Tovar, one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image, says, quote, Human beings need food and movement to survive. Diet culture steals food and movement, deeply pathologizes them, then commodifies them and sells them back to us, end quote. Humans have become the product. We notice this in social media usage and marketing strategy as well as in diet culture. We imperceptibly change our behavior to fit into the mold of this business. Thus, exercise becomes punishing as a necessary method to modify the evils and shortcomings of our bodies. This toxic fitness culture exists as fitness as the sole purpose of weight loss, fitness with the sole purpose of weight loss or improved body composition, your image as your exclusive motivation, abnormal level, levels of exercising, which can be harmful and potentially the start of an addiction linked to an eating disorder. You might deal an extremity to correct the wrongs of your body. Also, if your intention behind going to the gym is to achieve an ideal body, Because those ideal bodies that we seek through fitness, which is thin, muscular, typically cisgendered and white, are the bodies that we seek through an eating disorder. There's this ideal body that we orient ourselves toward. And although potentially genetically impossible for many of us, this is a body that we will sacrifice everything for. It's also important to note that in the designation of many eating disorders, Exercise is included. Specific types of exercise granted, but exercise nonetheless. For example, anorexia may even be characterized by obligatory exercise, where the person arranges their life around workouts to maximize time exercising. Does this sound familiar? Further, those with bulimia may compensate for binges with long, extreme bouts of exercise. So thus, exercise, if used in certain ways, may exist as an eating disorder behavior, which is why I think the concept of exercise in our society must be reworked. Registered dietitian and eating disorder specialist Anna Sweeney, RD, shared her thoughts on Instagram back in August. Quote, If you are a fitness professional, you are working with humans with eating disorders. If you are a fitness professional, know that your words of encouragement and your words of negative reinforcement are heard long after training sessions end. Your words become the chant for an eating disorder, end quote. Toxic fitness culture may also exist when we cue exercises as combating bat wings or love handles or stubborn thighs, any of these derogatory euphemisms for body parts. It is a self-objectifying, dehumanizing lens of exercise. 
And also, these are seen on workout plans or schedules given unsolicited on the internet or by a trainer. I've seen them myself, especially at the peak of my eating disorder. Also consider that fitness, that toxic fitness culture may exist in what has come to kind of rule our nation. The fitness tracker, the Apple Watch, the Fitbit, whatever other fitness trackers there exist. Because typically these fitness trackers are all about numbers, calories, stairs, steps, miles. Your movement thus is commodified and these numbers tattoo themselves onto your brain. These numbers may tattoo themselves onto your brain, I should say. Especially for a vulnerable audience. The numbers must be outdone, outstepped, overruled by the next set of numbers that define the goodness and wholeness and completion of your day. We exist as a culture ruled by numbers, especially the embarrassing, shameful metrics of our bodies. Ask yourself, what would happen if I didn't exercise for a week, for a month? If the answer is filled with shame, anxiety, and impossibility, you may have a preoccupation with exercise. This may be something that you want to explore a little bit further. Also ask if there is a flexibility with how and when and what you do to exercise. Do you have a no days off mindset? And are you only exercising to control your body? Are you exercising only because of bodily shame or manipulation? These questions take a lot of interiority, a lot of deep reflection. And similar to last week's episode, these questions force a communication system with yourself. Re-examine your fitness goals because intention matters. And maybe recenter exercise from a no pain, no gain mentality to joyful movement or mindful movement or gentle movement. Obviously, these things exist in a spectrum. From gentle movement to moderate physical activity to then extreme sport. And like I said before, the health benefits don't appear to be exclusive. Interestingly, it doesn't matter really how intense your workout is. It seems that your mood can benefit from exercise no matter the intensity of physical activity. In fact, health benefits may be reversed if the intensity and extremity of the physical activity goes beyond the benefits listed for the moderate, more frequent, recurrent physical activity. It's important to note that exercise is also individual. Twin studies suggest that about half of the difference in physical activity among people is probably inherited. And researchers are making headway in identifying particular genes that may influence how we respond to physical exertion. For example, they've identified some of the genes responsible for variation in the beta agonist receptors in the lungs. How your lungs and heart react to strenuous exercise depends in part on those receptors, on the genes that you were given upon conception, (laughs) that you have no control over. When you are as devoted to exercise as you are about changing your body, isn't that disordered? Doesn't that abide by the same principle as extremity and eating disorders or body image issues? Now, I am biased, (laughs) I have not heavily or intensely exercised in a long time, partly to preserve my healing process and recovery and partly because it is not a frequent need my body communicates to me. I do know, however, that my body will tell me if it wants to exercise to feel good. 
And maybe this discussion serves my self-interest as it affirms my little exercise mentality. I guess in this case, we must prioritize one sensory experience over another. Similar to last episode's hunger and fullness cues, prioritize the feeling of touch. Prioritize your sense of feeling instead of the visual affirmation of your body changing. Do you spend hours in the gym, miles on the pavement, laps in the pool to alter what is reflected back to you in a piece of glass? Or do you do all of these things because your body tells you it will make it feel good? De-emphasize your vision and heighten the emphasis on how the exercise or movement is making you feel. Why do we feel such a desperate need to change the space that we live in? I can't help but think that this is normalized disordered thinking. Exercising, gym memberships, the wellness or fitness industry is so ingrained in our culture that we don't even recognize it for the potential disorder that it is. I'm guilty of this too. My favorite YouTuber happens to be Stephanie Buttermore, whose channel is catered to fitness and well-being ideals. Granted, she and I would agree on a lot of talk about disordered eating and extreme hunger, so I guess who am I to tell her what she needs or doesn't need? I feel like we are tasked to care for our bodies and preserve these first homes, but our culture is one of extremity. Is our extreme loyalty to exercise really care? Is this extremity maybe tied to seeing what our bodies are capable of, which is a noble thought and one I ascribe to more often than I care to admit, but this might be rooted from a place of mistrust of self, of self-disregard. Do we want to prove what our bodies are capable of because we need to overcompensate and reassert our worthiness or strength or capacity for perfection as human beings? Obviously, this is an ongoing conversation, but these are just thoughts that I'm posing here today. If you feel that you would like to reevaluate your relationship with your body or to exercise, please consider listening to HTIL episode 23 titled Celebrating Weight Gain and Body Positivity and Neutrality. Specifically, look for the discussion on body neutrality, which offers a separate lens at which to view our first and forever homes. Again, most questions here pose thoughts for a later discussion, but this has been weighing on my mind most recently in discussions with those around me. I've been forced to reevaluate the role exercise has in my life as it perpetuated and made worse my eating disorder and desire to shrink myself. I want you to know that this, ex- that this episode is not me lecturing that exercise is a bad thing. I just think it is important that we re-examine our loyalty to exercise and the attention behind it with more scrutiny. Intentionality is important. If you are listening to this, I would just invite you to retreat inwards for a moment and ponder the role exercise plays in your life. Does it come from a place of care, concern, and nourishment of your body, or does it instead come from a place of wanting to change, modify, or idealize according to gender and racial frameworks your body? If you would like to learn more about what sources I use in the discussion of exercise intentionality, my citations will be placed in the show notes. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you missed the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own eating disorder story, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. 
If you feel that treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project survivors, Heal, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HJL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.